Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for these moments that we've had to sing of our faith in Jesus and the finished work that he's done on the cross and the hope that we have in the resurrection which is to come. Lord, in his soon return. God, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of your people here as they hear my voice that, that God, they would see the beauty which is the good news of Jesus. Help no one to leave this time having not spent time with you. Oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My name is Jonas, I'm one of the pastors here and I'm delighted that I get to wrap up our five-part series called The Big Picture, a look at God's big grand story through the scriptures. And uh, speaking of the scriptures, if you don't have a copy with you, I would love for you to have one because today we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Acts and I want you to follow along. And if you do that on your electronic device, it's great, but if you want a paper copy, please just raise your hand as they're coming down the aisle and uh, we'll, I'll be sure to give you page numbers and help you find your way around. I am really excited to share with you how God's big picture moves from Easter, which we heard about last week, into eternity. Now on Tuesday, Tuesday for me is, it was very normal. It had a little more stress than normal, but it, it was our first day back at our Good News Club at the uh, elementary school across the street. And I had done my preparation work, but when I got to club and I started to open up my bag, I discovered that I didn't have any of my teaching notes. And I started to panic. And God has been very kind to me to give me other adult helpers like Joe and Allison and Melody. And Melody happened to have her notes. And those notes were helpful, but it wasn't my notes. And so I started out my first day back at, at Good News Club quite anxious. And, uh, and with a room of a small group of very energetic, inquisitive children that wanted to learn and that hadn't been to Good News Club in a while. So we were having to relearn all of our routines. And it was really fun for me because I was on the spot and I had to do my very best with what I could remember. And then I remembered, hey, Jonas, this is what you're preaching about on Sunday. It was great how the Lord's timing brought me to that, you know, right, what happened right after Easter? And, and not knowing how to keep the kids engaged, I decided we'd go on a journey. So I would walk the children around a little bit like a mother hen, and I'd say, okay, let's go sit over here, because remember Jesus, with his disciples, he would sit down and teach them. So you guys sit down, I'm going to teach you. And then we'd go for a walk, and, we, and we'd talk about different things, and we went different places throughout the school, and I tried to get them to use their imagination to imagine what was it like to have been there on that first Easter morning. I share all of that because today as we talk about from Easter to eternity, I wanna go back to the beginning. I wanna to talk to you about what it was like at the birth of the church and the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to invite you to give yourself permission at the leading of the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind to imagine a little bit. What would it have been like what would you have smelled or tasted or seen or touched? Where would your questions have gone? And, and how might Jesus have responded to you? Because we know, what we know about Jesus is that he's gentle and lowly and he was quick to love and concern. And, and he wasn't afraid of our questions. And to begin at that beginning, I want you to hear these very familiar words from Matthew chapter 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubting. Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, even to the ends of the age. Jesus makes it clear to the 11 remaining disciples that their task is to continue the work he began of establishing the kingdom of God. This kingdom will be made up of disciples from all nations. An entrance into the kingdom will be marked by their baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Their task will be to teach other disciples to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And their comfort and secure hope will be that Jesus is with them, even to the ends of the age. So they begin to share this story of Jesus, and they begin to see how lives are being changed. There was a medical doctor turned historian that was so impacted by the story of Jesus that he wrote two volumes on the life of Christ. We know these as the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He recorded the acts of God's work in the world as a witness to the growth of the church. And we learn from the book of Acts that Jesus spent 40 days teaching and responding to his disciples' questions after that first Easter. In such a way, he was with them, just like he promised he would be. Listen in on the conversation in Acts chapter 1. If you're following along in the Bible, it's on page 935 of that Bible we handed out. Then the disciples gathered around Jesus and they asked him, Lord, Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Jesus was quite patient with his disciples' questions about dates and times and political realities, and he reminded them that that this was the business of the Father. The Father is the only one who knows when the fullness of the kingdom of God, when Jesus Christ will return. The Father knows that date. And until then, their task is to be God's witness to the world. Notice in Acts 1.8, these words. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Friends, if that verse isn't marked in your Bible, I would encourage you to highlight it, put a little star by it, do something so that you recognize just how significant this verse is in the story of the birth of the early church. We're going to lean on this verse throughout the rest of our time together. It serves as an outline, and by the end of the book of Acts, we're going to see how just what Jesus said came true. The geographical spread, Jerusalem, the city, to Judea, the region, to Samaria, the region, outward and further and further, even to the ends of the earth, God had in mind that the good news of Jesus would spread. Now imagine with me that you're there in Acts chapter 1, and you're one of the observers. The kids loved this. After Jesus had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them before their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I've got to think, what would that have felt like? I wonder if it wasn't a little bit like Moses at the burning bush, like, what is this? What is this? 
And then confusing thoughts, but, but thoughts coming to mind of like, but remember the, the angels that stood by the tomb when it was empty? Remember how Jesus said he was going to die and then he would be raised again? He did that. Remember how Jesus said he's gonna go away and prepare a house for you? And if it weren't so, he wouldn't say it, that he's gonna go away, but then he's gonna come back. And now we're living in this. And I love how raw and human the text of the scriptures are. I mean, just think about it. Your necks are tilted up. You're looking and you see that Jesus, he was here, now he's gone and you're standing there like this. And all of a sudden, two dudes in bright white clothes stand before you like, hey guys, what are you looking for? Uh, remember what Jesus said. He said he's coming back. And he's going to come back just like he left in the clouds. And he's going to call his people out. Friends, what a beautiful promise. And the angels bear witness to this promise of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, but, or Acts chapter 1, but the story, it just keeps getting better. When the Holy Spirit did descend on the people of God, just as Jesus promised he would, well, the disciples began to speak in language they didn't know about the good work of Jesus. Look in Acts chapter 2. On the day when, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, we call that day Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Doesn't that sound like the Great Commission? God is drawing his people from every nation to join this new movement called the church. And some of the people, again, I love this about the Bible. It's raw because you see some of the people stand up like, those guys are drunk. Listen to their babble. And, and others are like, no, it's my language. I, I understand. And Peter stands up and he begins to preach to the crowds about the reality of their sin and their need for a savior. Listen to what happens at the end of his message in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people came to Christ through a work of the Spirit in spreading the gospel in Acts. Now I would encourage you as a student in Acts to, to take note of those numbers. They become important and they become records of how the gospel of Jesus is spreading, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Here we begin to see how Jesus' church is growing in numbers significantly, but also as we read through the, the second chapter, we'll see how they mature and what it means to love others as God has loved them. The church begins to grow and understandably, these first Christians, well, they expected Christ to return very soon. I mean, the angels had said, just like he went up, he's coming back. And so they're waiting. They're together. And they form this close-knit community in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
And they grow in their understanding of what it might mean to be the people of God set apart for his good works. Follow along in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were being performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. God was growing his church in breadth and in depth. They were sharing their resources with those in need. And the story just keeps getting better. Listen to what happens in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John were doing what they normally do. They were going about their time and they were walking up to go pray with others in the temple. And there was this guy who was always begging for money. He was about 40 years old, the text tells us. He'd been there a long time. And then Peter said to him, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and his ankles became strong. It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? He jumped up to his feet, and they began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts. He was walking and jumping, and he was praising God. Do you hear the joy in these passages? When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as that same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They were in awe of what God was doing. We read in the text that many people believed. But we also read in the text that many in this particular town became very upset and they brought Peter and John before the leaders. And here we begin to see in Acts chapter 3 the opposition to Jesus' church on display. But instead of the church of Jesus Christ shrinking when it's opposed, when the church of Jesus Christ is opposed, the gospel becomes more beautiful when lived out and when spoken clearly. And the church grows. In Acts chapter 4, the leaders have called in Peter and John, and it says that they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied to these leaders. They said, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You guys decide. As for us, we can't help but speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. They've seen and heard Jesus, and they can't help but share that good news. And the church gathers together, and they pray, and God moves. And the people of the church continued selling their possessions and sharing with anyone in need, and the story gets even better. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, we learn of this man named Joseph. He was a Levite from Cyprus, and the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet and it helped many of the believers who were in need. But then something really strange happens. In Acts chapter 5, another group sells some land. Maybe you've heard of them, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property like Barnabas, but unlike Barnabas, they make a pact and they lie with God. 
And then when asked about it by the apostles, they lie to the apostles, and in that moment, they fall dead in the church. And we learn that lying, God takes lying really seriously still. It's just, and, the, and the church stands in awe and amazement at what God is doing this sobering reality of the work that's happening. Continuing in Acts chapter five, the more believers are persecuted and the disciples keep sharing the gospel. They get thrown in jail and they're delivered from jail by angels. Acts five verse 41 says the apostles, they left the Sanhedrin and they rejoiced because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now you can imagine, and it was true, as the church grew in number and got bigger and bigger, it got harder to manage. Those 11 plus a few more couldn't handle all of this church growth. And so in Acts chapter 6, they chose seven spiritually minded men to serve the church as deacons, which means servants. And these deacons' job was to make sure that everyone got fed, everyone got served, everyone got taken care of. And one of them rose to the top. His name was Stephen. Now Stephen is being challenged about his faith. He's brought before the public, and what do you believe? And they actually bring people along to lie about him. He preaches one of the most beautiful sermons. You can go read it in Acts chapter 7. And at the end of it, he is murdered for his faith. Persecution hits the church in Jerusalem really hard. But persecution doesn't slow the spread of the gospel, it speeds it. There's a man named Saul who, who watches and witnesses the death of Stephen and he actually goes and he gets permission from other leaders to say, I want to persecute even more of these Christians. How dare they preach that Jesus is the Messiah. In Acts chapter 8, that persecution continues to break out, but so does the gospel. Listen to eight, chapter, chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered, well, they preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaimed the gospel there. Did you hear that key geographic term? What Jesus said would happen, it's happening in Acts chapter 8. And all, it's continuing to build. It's like a huge crescendo of the message of the good news spreading. Chapter 8, verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and they saw these signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Because with shrieks, impure spirits were coming out of many. And many who had been paralyzed or they were lame, they were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. This is good news. The church is growing. In Acts chapter 9, the great persecutor of the church, Saul, is, is knocked off his horse by a vision and a personal encounter with Jesus. And it begins this journey of him growing in his understanding that Jesus really is the Messiah. And he goes from persecutor to preacher. In Acts chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius come together through visions that God gave him. And I would encourage you sometime, friend, as a student of the book of the Bible, to go and read Acts chapter 10 and savor in there for a minute all that God is doing to bring this to bear. Here is a man that didn't know God personally, but he knew of Israel's God. And he wanted to know this God. And so he would get together and he was a benevolent man. He was a good man. And he would pray to God, but he was distant from God. 
And through the work of visions in his life and a vision in Peter's life, God brought Peter into Cornelius' home. And in verse 34, Peter says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And we begin to see in greater clarity how the good news of Jesus is not limited by ethnicity or nation building, by military strength or wealth. Paul would later write to the church in Ephesus that God is creating a new humanity that is made one in Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. All are one in Christ. And Cornelius' story is evidence that the gospel is spreading beyond Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this was an incredible and challenging development for the people of God in the time of the apostles. It hurt their Jewish heads to understand how God could love those who weren't part of their ethnic reality so much. But they embraced it because it's true. We begin to see in Acts chapter 11 how the pace of the expansion of the church picks up. The church is expanding geographically, and this expansion of the church is on full display in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and following. If, you're, if you have one of those handed out Bibles, it's on page 946. Listen to the text. Again, Luke is just so human. It's so wonderful to read his story as a brother in Christ. He says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed... Well, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. They were spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and they began to speak to the Greeks also. And they told them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and they turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And so the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas, you remember Barnabas, to Antioch. When Barnabas arrived, he saw that the, what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Did you hear that repeated again? Luke wants you to see that when the gospel is set free, people come to Jesus. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And this was the place where the Christians, were, where they were first called Christians, happened at Antioch. Friends, observe with me, if you will, that God uses the persecution of his people to spread the message of Jesus Christ. What the enemy might mean for evil, God uses for good. And this pattern repeats often throughout human history. Some church historians have identified that on average, about every 400 years, God moves in human history. And people who are far from God hear the good news of Jesus because of these mass people migrations that happen. God is over all of these things. And the world is stirring again in our day. As you read the news and as you listen to to what's happening, our world is being stirred significantly. 
There are more migrations of people in our lifetime than ever in the history of the world. The numbers of people who are being shuffled and moved, many of them know Jesus and they bring their knowledge of Jesus here and other lands and they're sharing the good news of how God is caring for them as exiles in a strange land. But many of them, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not know Jesus and they're here. You don't have to look very far to find somebody from a different culture whose home base has never heard the good news of Jesus or whose home has rejected the good news of Jesus but who is open to hearing about the hope that you have in Christ. Friends, today is our day and now is our time to share this good news. The world is at our door and God desires for us to reach people who are far from God who live right here in our neighborhood. We'll jump back in Acts chapter 12. You see how Peter is miraculously released from prison. And then you hear this story. It's kind of a side note that James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of those two who are known as the sons of thunder in John's gospel, well, he was martyred for his faith. And then you begin to see it gets popular for the leader to kill the Christians. But for every Christian they killed, more popped up. I love this statement at the end of Acts chapter 12. The word of God continued to spread and it flourished. Beginning in Acts 13, you see how Paul takes a more prominent role in the story of the early church. And we see here the beginning of the first of his three missionary journeys. Now I wanna give you some tools to help you understand Acts so it kinda just makes sense from a big picture. The church is growing, it's spreading from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. God is using the persecution of his people to spread the good news wherever they went. They preached the good news of Jesus. Paul would go on three missionary journeys. This man who is so um, excited about persecuting Christians is reformed into a man now who can't wait to tell people who have never heard of Jesus that he is the Messiah, the one who has come to save God's people. Acts chapter 13 and 14, this first journey, Paul takes Barnabas. Actually, Barnabas takes Paul. If you look at the order, it's Barnabas and Paul, and then this guy named John Mark. We learned last week from Pastor Craig that this is the John Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. Not everything goes super well, but we see here that Paul and Barnabas and these guys have a plan of planting congregation in principal cities. And as people were converted, he would, he would get them organized and, and, and establish suitable leadership, and then he was on to the next place. He was a man on a mission to reach people who had never heard of Jesus. In Acts chapter 15, there was this conference of the leaders of the church. The leaders were called together, and at this conference, they freed Gentile believers from the Jewish regulation of circumcision. They all agreed, you don't have to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus. However, they had not decided whether Christians of Jewish background could eat with these Gentile converts. Peter took his stand with Paul in favor of this practice which involved relaxing the Jewish food regulations. In fact, Peter set the example by eating with the Gentiles here in this scene. But we learn in Galatians that, that Peter was quite imperfect and so was Barnabas. There were times when Paul had to confront Peter and Barnabas and say, over here you guys said that the Gentiles were welcome, but now you're acting like they don't belong. And through their confrontation, 
and there's their disagreements. The, the theology of the church is being worked out and it becomes beautiful. That Acts chapter 15, the gathering of the apostles, it helped them develop how the early church was going to work through significant disagreements to the glory of God. And this pattern of gathering for theological reflection and answering questions of the day, well, that's continued throughout the history of the church. Many of you grew up in traditions where you were learning creedal statements like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. You can go back and you can see these, these seven ecumenical gatherings of the church in the first 800 years of the church. The church would come together, its leaders, and they would, by the power of the Spirit of God, respond to the items of their day. It's a beautiful display of what God is doing. Well, his second missionary journey, after three years of mission to the Gentile world, he turned back to Antioch, and in Acts chapter 16, you see he goes towards Macedonia, um, towards modern-day Europe. So, so this way to this way, into places like Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, that famous city and that famous conversation he had. You might remember this. He's standing there and he's trying to talk in the public square and he sees this statue to an unknown God. And Paul says, there, I'll start there. Let me tell you about this unknown God who sent his son Jesus that you might know him. In Acts chapter 18, we read of Priscilla and Aquila, this wonderful couple and their leadership of the church in Corinth. Apollo shows up as a church leader in Ephesus. And we begin to see the names of more and more leaders being raised up in the church. In Acts 19 through 20, around AD 52, Paul begins his third missionary journey. And this time, after visiting the churches in Derby and Lystra and Iconia and Antioch, he decided to do some intensive missionary work in Ephesus. Now, when I say Ephesus, hopefully you hear the word Ephesians. This is where he was writing letters back to the church. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a strategically located place for commerce. It was surpassed in size and importance only by Rome and Alexandria and Antioch. And as the outcome of Paul's labors there, it became the third most important city in the history of the early Christianity. You see, Christianity started in Jerusalem, but because of persecution, a lot of that energy got pushed to Antioch, and then the church was growing, and that church then was, was um, sent out into Ephesus, and Ephesus became another sending center for the church of Jesus. Paul, being led by the Spirit, his mission was to preach the gospel where there was no church. He would often speak first in the Jewish synagogue and then he would frequently be rejected and then he would go and speak to the Gentiles who would listen to him. Though often persecuted, he said of himself, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You see, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. The church grew and the church expanded. Now, if you're following along in the book of Acts, you're going to see chapters 21 to 28, this, this intentional shift. Paul begins to put most of his energy and preparation towards going to Rome. He gets arrested for preaching the gospel, and they beat on him, and he says, what are you doing? I'm a Roman citizen. And he makes an appeal to Caesar, and they try to get rid of him, but he refuses to be get, gotten rid of. And, and he plays his I'm a Roman citizen card, and he uses it for the benefit of the gospel. It's amazing. Most of the 
text we read here, we see how the gospel is being rejected uh, significantly in Jerusalem by the crowds. Paul gets warned that, Paul, if you go to Rome, you're going to die. But Paul sets his mind to Rome because he knows that there he will have the opportunity to share his faith wherever he goes and with the highest uh, elements of society. One of the scenes, it's so beautiful and so human Paul is uh, making his case before one of the governors and the governor kind of stops him and says, what are you doing? Are you trying to convince me too? And you get this sense like, yeah, I am. I want you to believe. Paul was a man on a mission. He wanted people who didn't know Jesus to know Jesus. And he was willing to submit himself to an authority that would ultimately kill him for the sake of those people to know Jesus. Doesn't that sound like our Savior? And a beautiful display of the grace of God. In Acts chapter 28, the Christians of Rome traveled about 30 miles from the city to welcome Paul when he came to Rome. Julius delivered Paul to the captain of the guard who then placed the apostle under house arrest. And in Acts 28.30, we learn that Paul was able to rent a house for two years while waiting for Caesar to hear his case. And what we know from church history is that many of Caesar's people came to know Jesus. The gospel broke loose in Rome. And then the book of Acts just suddenly ends. But Luke has provided a tremendous record of the movement of God from Easter to eternity as he described the movement of the gospel throughout the known world. What Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, absolutely happened. Jesus had promised that Peter, to Peter, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the expanding kingdom of God. And so it was. Peter would go on to remind his leaders, his readers, that you also are like living stones. You're being built up into a spiritual house. You're strangers and aliens in a foreign land. Jesus had promised earlier in the Gospels that when the Helper came, the Holy Spirit, he would bring to mind the teachings of Jesus and that this Holy Spirit would give them the words to say, and this he did time and time and time again. The New Testament as we have it today is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church as the church was growing and expanding. And and I want to encourage you to do something that, that I had not done very recently, but I hope it's helpful to you. If you have a Bible or you can find a list of all the New Testament books, I just want to give you a quick overview so that maybe those 27 books don't feel so intimidating and maybe they could make a little more sense in your head how they all go together. Now, last week, we heard about the four Gospels. These were stories and accounts of Jesus from four different authors. And they each took time to tell about the person of Jesus and invite the reader to believe in what God has done for them through Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. Jesus, the son of man. Jesus, the son of Adam. And Jesus, the son of God. Written that you might believe, John writes. Well, if you're going through your your index there, the next book in the list is the Acts of the Apostle. Again, it was written by Luke and it gives an accounting of the history of the church. We just did 28 chapters in less than 28 minutes. Then you'll see there are 13 letters that are written from the hand of Paul. The same Paul in Acts chapter 1-8 who stands at the murder of Stephen and who goes before the authorities and says, let me get more of them. But who encounters Jesus 
and is radically transformed. The next book you're going to see there is the book of Romans. The next time you read the book of Romans, I would encourage you to read it as a missionary support letter. A long letter, but a missionary support letter. Some of us, we're sending a team out to Honduras, and some of us are on the team. We wrote those letters. Um, I'm glad we didn't write the book of Romans to you. I don't think any of you would have written us back. But, but that's what it is. That was the heartbeat behind it. You guys who are in Rome, I want you to know these things are true. And because of that, let us be this kind of people. The letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians. Friends, if you want to see the church as a mess, go read 1 Corinthians. We're still a mess, and there's still hope. Galatians, Ephesians, again, you can go down the list, and each of these letters are pastoral in nature. Paul is shepherding the church under the great shepherd who is Jesus. He's obeying what Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he's teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded him. You see this heart for Paul. He's tender for those who, have, who don't know him. In Colossians, he says, I want you to know how greatly I'm striving for you and especially for those of you who have not met me yet. I love you, he writes. He's a tremendous reconciler. The book of Philemon is all about a man whom Paul respects greatly in the church and, and who has owned a slave named Onesimus and Onesimus runs away. And in his running away, he comes and he encounters the good news of Jesus Christ and he becomes a brother and so Paul puts his character on the line for Onesimus and says, Philemon, be reconciled to your brother in Christ. His passion is contagious in sharing the gospel, is striving for people who don't yet know Jesus to become to know Jesus as their Savior. Those 13 letters are all penned from Paul. And then you see another epistle or letter, uh, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is probably written around in, sometime in the 60s because it doesn't mention the fall of Jerusalem. And the point of the book of Hebrews was to help early followers of Jesus learn how do we live when we're persecuted so tremendously. You see, a Jewish person who came to Christ, they lost everything. Their families would hold funerals for them, though they live. And the book of Hebrews was to teach them how to live here. And they learn in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better than their religion. Jesus is better than what culture has to offer. Jesus is better than the government. Jesus is who we put our hope in. The next letter is that from James, one of Jesus' half-brothers. He was a significant leader in the church in Jerusalem. I forgot to tell you this, but he was the one who led that gathering in Acts chapter 15. He, he was like the, prince, the principal leader of the church in Jerusalem. And when they all came together, it was James who kept them working together. And it was James who blessed Barnabas and Paul and this idea that, of course, the Gentiles are part of the people of God. First and second Peter were written, written from Rome to the people of God experiencing, again, severe persecution. Peter emphasized that followers of Jesus are strangers and aliens in a foreign land. They're living in a spiritual exile. They're citizens of heaven and they're citizens of earth. And like the people of the Old Testament who lived through exile by being faithful to God, so too should the disciples of Jesus remain faithful. The three letters of John, as you read them, you see this tender, aged pastor writing with just exuding love like the best grandpa you could ever imagine. 
He's been exiled to an island by the authorities. He's alone and his heart just beats for the churches that he knows. But in those churches, there's a lie that's starting to stir in the church called Gnosticism. This lie that taught that the body and this world are evil, that salvation is gained simply by knowledge alone. And these Gnostics, they would argue that God could have never been incarnate. He couldn't have been really human because that wouldn't be God-like. Human is evil, spirit is good. And they maintained that a person could do what they want in this world. You could live however you want. Just believe the right things. And John couldn't stand it. He had walked with Jesus. He knew the truth. And as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, his love and concern for Christ's sheep were on full display. Jude, similarly, another brother of Jesus, he condemns the false doctrine that whatever is done in the body is not chargeable to the soul. This lie just seeped through the church. You can live however you want. It won't matter. Just believe the right thing. And Jude stood up to them. It's fascinating as you read in church history that four of Jude's sons became leaders in the early church. God took him as a pastor leader in the church and used his family to bless the church for generations. The final book you'll see there in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. It's written in an apocalyptic style. J.I. Packer says that apocalyptic writing of this sort was a kind of a code, a way of communicating that unbelieving enemies would not be able to understand. A person who wrote such literature could encourage his readers to stand against the pagan state and predict its downfall under divine judgment without fear of the officials catching on to what they're writing about. Listen to the hope in these words in Revelation chapter 7 and the echo of the Great Commission. It's on page 1066 if you're following along. After this, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes. We sang about this. And they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, Imagine this beautiful scene. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. You see, the future of the church is bright. What Jesus said would happen has happened and is happening. There was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne of God And God has invited you and me to participate in that mission. Listen to John's vision in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! It's God's dwelling place. It's now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The one who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. God has recorded for us a beautiful end to the story. He's the hero of our story and he's invited us on this mission. Friends, do you have tears in your eyes from the grief that you experience or have been experiencing? Do you grow tired of death 
and the mourning and the crying and the pain that is part of our lives today. If you do, you're in great company. I shared earlier with a friend, when I was much younger, I couldn't understand how my friends who were older prayed with sincerity and urgency and intensity for Jesus to come back soon. That didn't make sense to me. Having lived a little longer, I see how they're there. And like them, I plead to God to please make right the things that are wrong. Our only hope is in Jesus. And for 2,000 years, the people of God have shared this message that there's only one way to know God, and that's through his son, Jesus. The promises of God have carried his people through the generations, and today, God is still the hero of his big picture. Yes, God's people will suffer at the hands of evil people. Yes, the broken world will make us miserable at times. Yes, we have an enemy who longs to destroy. And yet, in spite of that, God's people remain faithful and hopeful, knowing that Jesus is with them to the very ends of the age. The marching orders for Jesus' church have not changed. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Even in the face, and especially in the face of persecution and opposition and hardship, the good news of Jesus can shine bright. God sees us in our sin and he reaches out through his son Jesus to reconcile us to himself. By his spirit, while we're in spiritual exile, he goes before us and he draws us to himself. Jesus said that he would die for our sins and rise from the dead, and he did. Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for us and that he will return to gather his people, and he will. He also said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. Friends, God's story, the story of the scripture, of the acts of the New Testament is the story of a God who knows you best and loves you most. And today, as you consider this big picture story of the scriptures, I want to invite you to place your faith in in the person and work of Jesus. Confess the sin that lives within you and turn your heart to God. Receive his grace and embrace his forgiveness and begin to live in light of the hope that we have. The one thing I want to leave you with today is that you would remain hopeful. Our only hope is in Jesus. And we can rest in that hope. We can work to remain where that hope lives in Christ. The former slave trader turned pastor, John Newton, penned these words in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and his grace will lead me home. Brothers and sisters, hope in Jesus. Remember his words. They were just as true, they are just as true today as they were when Jesus first said them. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We've read today that that has been true. We see through the history of the church that it has been true. We know in our lives that it is true, and we look forward to a glorious future where it continues to be true. Jesus' words, that in him we may have peace. In the world you may have trouble, but take heart, 
I've overcome the world. So today, hope in Jesus.